Hey, um, just uh, tell me again your name and your position. My name is Shannon Murray. I am uh, for this community search. I'm the search manager. I have been with Class Kids Foundation, Class Kids Search and Rescue, out of Pensacola, Florida, uh, for about seven years. And um, this is one of the things that we do with our uh, with our organization is we come and we teach uh, how to run community searches. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Flashpoints. I'm Sarah Blanco, contributing producer, sitting in for Dennis Bernstein, International Women's Day 2022. Thank you to co-producer Frank Sterling, plus special thanks to all of my guests, as well as Laurie Marshall and Rose Thayer. listener-supported community radio KBOO, Portland, Oregon, in the beautiful Willamette Valley. You're listening to the last week of KBOO's All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 1 special programming. Check out all the great programming specials we've been bringing you in February and March at kboo.fm slash thrills. We only have until Saturday, March 19th to reach our goal of $15,000, so donate now. You can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Nancy Alderman. She is the founder and president of Environment and Human Health, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to the protection of human health from environmental harms. EHHI is composed of physicians, public health professionals, and policy experts dedicated to protecting human health through research, education, and the promotion of sound public policy. Among her many accomplishments, Ms. Alderman is a former board member of the Environmental Defense Fund. She worked to stop and shut down an Upjohn chemical plant in North Haven, Connecticut, that was exposing thousands of residents, including school children, to the toxic emissions emanating from the plant. She is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the New England Public Health Association's Award for Outstanding Contributions to Public Health in the Environmental Health Area, the Connecticut Bar Association's Award in recognition of making a significant contribution to the preservation of environmental quality through work in the fields of environmental law, protection, or planning, as well as the prestigious Dragonfly Award from Beyond Pesticides. Ms. Alderman holds a Master's in Environmental Studies from the Yale School of the Environment. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. Well, I am so impressed with your work and your organization, and I guess we should start our conversation by my simply asking you, how did you become interested in environmental health? It was clear to me from the work that I was doing. I was on the board, as you mentioned, of the Environmental Defense Fund, but I was also president of the Connecticut Fund for the Environment. And what I found was what I thought was the greatest problem facing all of us were the environmental harms that I thought were affecting us all. And I could not, from board positions, get organizations to focus on it. And I tried really hard, and I just couldn't do it. And I thought, you know, this has to get done. Somebody has to look at where the environment is harming people and then change policies to protect people. So I didn't have a BA degree. I had gotten married after two years of college, and I knew I couldn't do health without advanced degrees. And so I live in New Haven, and Yale is in New Haven. So I applied to see if I could finish my undergraduate degree so that I could go on to graduate school. And that's what I did. I went back as an older person, and it was very difficult, if I do say so, taking chemistry and biology with all these people who were 18 and 19 years old. 
But anyway, I did it, and then I went on to the Yale School of, at the time it was called the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. So when I got out, then what I needed was to work for somebody. And I couldn't find anybody who was doing the work of environment and human health. There was nobody doing it. And there was one organization that was just beginning called the Physicians for Social Responsibility out of Washington, D.C. And I interviewed there, but I couldn't move to Washington. So what was left to me was either to start a nonprofit or to do nothing. And I couldn't do nothing after all the effort I had put in to getting my degrees. And so I started a nonprofit, but I was panicked that I would not be able to raise the money to pay staff. And somebody said to me, hire people who don't need to be paid. And I thought, I never heard of such a thing. How do you hire people that don't need to be paid? Well, that's what Environment and Human Health, Inc. is. We are 11 people, all at the top of their game, who all have another job. And so I don't have to pay them. I only have to pay when they do a piece of work, like a report or research. Otherwise, we have the chair of OBGYN at the Yale School of Medicine. We have an oncologist from the Yale Medical School. We have the toxicologist, who is the toxicologist for the state of Connecticut. We have the past commissioner of health from the state of Connecticut. So everybody is at the absolute top of their game. They're all employed, and they all work because they are dedicated to making sure that the public is protected. And so that's how we started, and that's how we've continued. And we've been able to do an enormous amount of research and policy enactments, all in the name of protecting people. Well, it's quite remarkable that you graduated in 1997 and started this nonprofit also in the same year and have been able to raise funds to pay for those key reports that you've published. And just so our listeners know, the research areas that your nonprofit has covered include artificial turf, breast cancer, drinking water wells, fetal exposures, healthy schools, obesity, pesticides, plastics, and many more, things that are certainly included in any discussion of food and water. And I always like to remind people that water is actually our most important nutrient. So working in environmental areas that protect water is absolutely embedded in any dietitian's work. And I think we need to also assume that we don't have the protections that we think we do, right? We think we turn on the tap or we go to the grocery store, we buy canned food, we buy something in a package, and we think that there are some government agencies that are keeping us safe. It wouldn't be sold, for example, if it wasn't safe. And your reports have uncovered quite the opposite. Right. Well, the very first report we ever did was a drinking water study of private homes. And the reason a state can't do that is people don't want to give their wells over to the state because if they find something in the well, then they can't sell their house. So we had to promise that nobody other than us would ever find out what was in their wells. And we got it underwritten, so it didn't cost them very much. And we tested 53 wells, private wells, to see whether there were lawn and tree care pesticides in their wells. And it was really interesting because we picked a town of Woodbridge, Connecticut, because it's basically a bedroom town. There is no industry in that town. It's mainly just residential. But there are golf courses in that town. And we assumed before we did the testing that the houses near the golf courses would be the most impacted. And what we found was actually fairly surprising to us. We asked everybody whether they were regular users of pesticides, intermittent users of pesticides, or non-users of pesticides, and were organic. 
And what was interesting is that in the wells where we found pesticides, we even found them in the properties that were not using pesticides. And if anybody has ever read Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, she talks about the fact that if pesticides are used anywhere in a town, they can show up any place else in the town in the groundwater because groundwater moves. It's not stationary. So, of course, it makes sense that water that is impacted by lawn and tree care pesticides, if people are on wells in the whole town, it's going to show itself in all kinds of places that people might not expect. So we thought that was really interesting. But one more thing, as we met with town people to get their permission for their wells, a woman raised her hand and said, I know we're here about the well study, but I have to tell you, my child was poisoned in the grammar school this week by pesticides being put in the child's cubby, and they all take their lunches, and some of them in brown bags. And my child's lunch was in a brown bag, and a janitor must have sprayed the cubbies because he got really sick. He didn't die, but he got very sick. And I said, I promise you we will deal with this. I can't do it tonight. We're doing well water study. But by tomorrow, I will find out what is going on, and we will change the policies, whatever they are, that could cause anything like this to happen. And that's exactly what we did. And that led not only to the well study, but it led to changing the policies of how pesticides are sprayed in schools. So never again in Connecticut could a janitor start spraying cubbies. And the worst of it was the kids had lice in their heads. And anybody who knows about lice, you don't spray cubbies to get rid of lice. So anyway, that was the beginning of Environment and Human Health, Inc. It pushed us right into the fray of, number one, what's going on, really, and how do we change the policy to protect people? And that's where we started. What a fabulous story. I think you bring up such excellent points. Part of our discussion really should be how people learn about these products that are used. So I'm, I'm thinking about the child who had his lunch exposed to pesticide sprays. And first of all, we have to expect a pediatrician to consider that the child was poisoned by pesticides. That in itself is a challenge. How many physicians or pediatricians specifically know to ask about pesticide exposure? That's true. And what we also learned as we worked with so many doctors, after all, there are 11 of us and over half are physicians, what we learned is what is taught in medical schools. Because, of course, they all went to medical school. And the environment is not taught in medical schools. And so when people say, oh, I'm going to ask my doctor about wood smoke, or I'm going to ask my doctor about synthetic turf, that probably is not your best resource. It could be, but it isn't necessarily your best resource. So some doctors have trained themselves to know a lot more about the environment and its effect on health. But I just need to say that in most medical schools, that is not part of the curriculum. Right. And there is an opportunity to have brochures in the waiting room or little videos in a waiting room I'm thinking about ways parents can be informed about these potential dangers to their children. The other issue is the lawn chemical relationship between not only pet health, of course, we know that pets that are raised on lawns that are sprayed are more likely to develop cancer, but how many families know that when they get the mailing from the lawn chemical companies saying, spray your lawn, have a healthy lawn, typically there are children and pets in these greenish brochures how do we get the right information out there to influence people who get these brochures to let them know, uh uh-uh, this is just about getting the company employed. It will harm or potentially harm your family. Well, it's extremely difficult because the money is on their side. 
But if you ever look at their brochures, it's really interesting. They never tell you what they're spraying. What they tell you is, we will do pre-emergent weed control. Well, nobody knows what that means. We will have post-emergent weed control. We will do a spraying for fungicides. But they never mention what the actual material is that they're going to use. And so industry has learned how to sell its product. And that's one of the ways they sell their product. And some people really care that their lawn looks absolutely green and pristine. And that's a problem. I would never say that people shouldn't have lawns because I think lawns are wonderful in that you can play croquet on them and you can play volleyball on them and whatever. Lawns are great, but you don't need pesticides to have a lawn. I've had a lawn for a long time and I don't use anything. So you certainly can have a fine lawn. It will have some dandelions in it and you just have to not be driven crazy when a dandelion pops up. Yes, and dandelions are also one of the first foods for bees. So I just want to put a plug in for that oh, beautiful plant. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Ms. Nancy Alderman. She is the founder and president of Environment and Human Health, Inc. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to the protection of human health from environmental harms. Nancy, in preparation for this interview, I went back and listened to a presentation that you gave in 2012. You spoke at the Beyond Pesticide Forum, and you said two things that I thought needed to be repeated. The first was people who work on reducing pesticide exposure in our environment have to have endurance. And the second was that you brought up the fact that you were asked to give a talk about Rachel Carson, and you went back and you reread her book. Silent Spring. And you said that at the time she was talking about labels on these products that are for sale in every garden center, every hardware store. Again, the consumer goes in, thinks they're fine. But you mentioned specifically the very teeny tiny print and the warnings that are stated. And sometimes if they're not even stated on the label, you can go online and do research on these ingredients. And anybody in their right mind who really read and understood the risk from these products would not be using them. That is true. And our most recent brochure is on Roundup, which is basically glyphosate. And the reason we got into that is because one of the 11 of us, Barry Boyd, who is an oncologist at the Yale School of Medicine, he has been doing a lot of the trials where people have gotten non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from overuse of Roundup or glyphosate products. And I don't know if everybody knows this, but it's certainly been in the news that Bayer that bought Monsanto, who developed Roundup, has been sued and has had to pay out millions, if not billions, of dollars for the people who have gotten non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we did a brochure on Roundup because it's being sold in every store, at least in Connecticut. It's on the shelves of Home Depot and Lowe's. It's everywhere. And people assume that because it is being sold, you can just pick it up and buy it, that it's safe. And they're using it when a weed pops up in their driveway or on their patio or whatever. And often in the summer, because that's when weeds tend to grow, And they often have on sandals and non-protective gloves or shoes, and they get often the material on them, and it's toxic. There's no question about it. Things that are designed to kill weeds by design are usually toxic. So we do have a brochure on Roundup, and we will have a policy initiative that we are going to, from this brochure, that we're going to bring up in Connecticut's legislative session when it starts in February. And that is to make Roundup or glyphosate products a registered pesticide. If it becomes a registered pesticide, only applicators can use it 
licensed applicators, and it will get it off all the shelves of the stores, and private people just can't pick it up and start spraying all over their house willy-nilly. And so I don't know that we'll get it passed. One never knows when you start an initiative, but we're going to try. And hopefully maybe other people in other states will agree with us and try the same thing in their states. The other thing about these lawn chemicals, in addition to glyphosate, because as weeds have become resistant to that particular compound, additional products are on the market, two of which concern me a great deal, one of which is dicamba, the other is 2,4-D, and those are also found in commonly used lawn chemicals that these companies go around and spray, and they can drift and harm gardens, they can harm fruit trees, they can harm vegetables, fruits, native plants that more and more people are interested in having. So I think this discussion, if anything, should help our listeners understand that these green, happy-sounding lawn chemical companies really do poison us, whether it is seepage into our drinking water or whether it is playing on the grass or whether it is from drift. I know there's one label in particular that says if the temperature is over 80 degrees, this particular product should not be used. And I think gosh, here in the Midwest, it starts to get to be over 80 degrees earlier and earlier in the spring. Right, right. So we've got a conundrum. Well, those two pesticides that you mentioned are in weed and feed. Mm -hmm. So weed and feed is sold everywhere for the public to use. It isn't just for people in agriculture, where it is, of course, but it's also on the same shelf as Roundup or other glyphosate products, you can also buy weed and feed and bring it right home, and it has those two pesticides in it. Right. And I thought it was interesting also during your talk at the Beyond Pesticide Forum that you brought up the issue of the names that we use for agencies or for products. So it used to be there would be a pesticide department or, say, a product labeled as a pesticide, and now we see more friendly terms like crop protection. That should be a red flag for anyone. If you see the words crop protection, that is code for pesticides. Interesting. Yeah. It's amazing what they can come up with. And also, when we used to go to the legislature and the people who would be against us, they changed their names so that you can't tell the people who are for pesticides from the people who are trying to control pesticides They all sound alike. So it's really interesting how industry has figured out how to keep going. Right. Do you find in your policy work that focusing your efforts to protect children and pets are the most effective ways to communicate? Well, they certainly are. People really care about their dogs and their cats. There's no doubt about that. And certainly they care about children. And we know that because children are small, it takes much less of anything to harm a child or a cat or a dog than it does a human. So we have focused a lot of what we do. A lot of our plastic work, our early plastic work, was really focused on children and children's health. And we now have a new plastic report that is really on all of our health and the environment's health as well. But our first plastic report was really on plastic in toys, plastic in baby bottles that had harmful chemicals in them. So yes, oh, and also one of the most successful things we ever did was school buses, which was strictly children. We monitored children to see how much diesel exhaust they were breathing while they were riding to school and riding home. And we found that they were exposed to 10 times the amount of diesel exhaust that the outside air would have. Mm. And then we figured out why, how that much diesel got into the buses that these children then had to ride for sometimes a half hour, breathing it in. And when we found out how it happened, then we changed the policy of how school buses were allowed to idle, picking up children and letting them off and whatever. We completely changed the way school buses were driven. That's so important. 
also, I want to mention your recognition of the role of the placenta in pregnant women and how we used to think that the placenta would protect our developing children from toxins that the mother might ingest, but actually what you've discovered or what you have explained to the public is that the placenta does allow toxins through. And so when we look at the microplastics, for example, in one of your latest reports, as well as things like BPA that we find in food cans, for example, and other food packaging toxins, the placenta is not protecting the fetus. And we really need to focus on future generations and protecting them. Well, they had told us a long time ago not to drink, don't smoke when you're pregnant. So it was sort of clear, if you're not meant to drink, that it must be, and because it will affect the child, it had to be doing something. We also thought the brain barrier was protecting the brain. And things we now know, not everything, but certain things do penetrate the brain barrier. So I think all the safeguards that we thought we had, we do not necessarily have. Yeah. I think that's very true. Well, the brochures that you have produced and the reports are so consumer-friendly and informative. And I think that we will have our listeners go to www.ehhi.org and just have the ability to peruse those research areas and get information for themselves and share it with others. Nancy, we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to bring forth anything, whether it's a new area of research or some of your own work history that you want to make sure our listeners know about. I guess what I really care about is that when people see sort of what is wrong, that they will try to make it better. I think we all can no longer be passive partners in anything. I mean, that goes for politics as well. I think we have to be part of solving these problems because the problems are getting vast. They're getting so much worse than they were when I started in 1997. Whoever knew that we would end up with an epidemic of plastic? Who knew that climate change would actually be with us? We knew it was out there, but did we know that we were going to actually see it all? So our problems are vast, and I'm afraid it's going to take all of us. It isn't just going to take a few of us. It's going to take everybody. And as they once said, living in a democracy is hard work. Well, living in a polluted world is also hard work. It's hard work to understand it. It's hard work to try to avoid the things that are most harmful. And it's hard work to try to get it all better. But I'm afraid we've all got to do that. And Melinda, you're doing a great job of educating people. And it's going to need everybody. It is going to take everybody. And a good first step for our listeners would be to visit www.ehhi. And I also want to commend you for your daily updates. And if you'd like those, you can go to info at ehhi.org and request to be put on that daily mailer. Because I think being educated is our first step. And then knowing that it is hard to get anything done politically, but it's a lot easier when you're not working alone. So, Nancy, unfortunately, we've got to close because our time is up. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Nancy Alderman, founder and president of Environment and Human Health, Inc., a nonprofit organization dedicated to the protection of human health from environmental harms. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn. 
a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Ms. Kristen Schaefer. She is the former executive director of the Pesticide Action Network, which is headquartered in Berkeley, California. The Pesticide Action Network is a nonprofit organization with a mission to end reliance on hazardous pesticides and achieve real health, resilience, and justice in food and farming. I think that Ms. Schaefer's background is especially important to note here because before joining the Pesticide Action Network, Kristen worked for the World Resources Institute's Sustainable Agriculture Program as a communications specialist for the Environmental Protection Agency and as an agroforestry extension officer in Kenya. And prior to stepping in as executive director, Kristen was the Pesticide Action Network's program and policy director. She has held many roles over the years, including coordinating the International Persistent Organic Pollutants Campaign under the Stockholm Convention, as well as the global campaign to phase out methyl bromide under the Montreal Protocol. Kristen has been the lead author on several Pesticide Action Network reports, including Chemical Trespass, Pesticides in Our Bodies and Corporate Accountability, Nowhere to Hide, Persistent Toxic Chemicals in the U.S. Food Supply, and she also co-authored both A Generation in Jeopardy and Kids on the Front Line, which featured how pesticides in particular affect our precious children. Kristen co-chairs the board of VeggieLution, an urban farm and food justice organization in her hometown of San Jose, California. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have been with the Pesticide Action Network for 25 years, and that is a considerable length of time. And what I wanted to do is, because you have recently left that position, I wanted to get your insight over those decades of time. But I think first we should start with what led you to the Pesticide Action Network? What was it about this organization that interested you? Well, thanks for that question. I... Um had been working on the East Coast. We were in Washington, D.C., and, and I was working with World Resources Institute, as you mentioned, on sustainable agriculture issues. And we moved out to California, actually back to California, which is where I mostly grew up. And uh, PAN was one of the organizations kind of in the field that drew me because of the commitment to food justice and to also connection to the global community and the fact that PAN is part of this international network that really sees the connections and the importance of the connections, how our food system relates from country to country and around the world and and how collaboration is needed across boundaries to make the changes we need. Well, you put together a three-part blog before you left the Pesticide Action Network and it reviews your story as well as the wonderful people and the work that you've done. And one of the things that you bring out is that this work requires a great deal of diligence and persistence. You know, we don't ban pesticides overnight, even though we've got really good science showing that they hurt children's brains. How were you able to keep that momentum going? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that in doing the blogs and that reflection, that theme of of persistence was really key and has been throughout the effort that I had been involved with in my tenure at PAN. I think the question of how to keep going is, one, to celebrate the milestones when you get them. Examples of that, you're very familiar with a neurotoxic chemical chlorpyrifos, which is very harmful to children's developing brains. And that was, we won a ban starting in Hawaii at the state level, then California, then New York. It sort of built the momentum to win a ban at the national level. And and actually, we just recently learned that chlorpyrifos is now moving forward under the global Stockholm Convention and maybe moving toward an international ban. So that, you know, it's building that momentum, celebrating those milestones, and being in partnership with the people who are directly affected by these chemicals because that underscores the importance of the work, 
the urgency of what we're trying to create in terms of an alternative vision of the food system. Yeah. Well, you're an excellent writer, an excellent communicator, and I wanted to ask you your thoughts about what are the best tools to relay the science. I've always questioned, is science, science is important, absolutely, but numbers and statistics and facts from scientific studies don't seem to be able to move the dial as much as some of these heartbreaking stories. And I wanted to get your opinion on how we can best communicate the urgency in getting these bills passed that would ban these horribly toxic pesticides. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to say, again, in the mode of kind of reflecting back over the years, that the tools of communication have changed over time, right? I think PAN was early on kind of cutting edge with our, we had a PAN-UPS newsletter, you know, that kind of summarized science and policy developments and and that became at some point outdated and then you move to something else to kind of use the tools that are relevant to people in the moment. In the past year, for example, PAN now has an Instagram account. And so that's just in terms of the tools, but in terms of the message, I think the combination of translating that science, the work that PAN does is deeply firmly rooted in science, and it has to be because there's plenty of science to make the case that pesticides are harmful, so there's no need to try to stretch that information. It's the truth. But translating that into in ways that people can understand, whether that's graphs or using images, and then complementing that with, as you say, personal stories that really illustrate this family was affected by chlorpyrifos drift in Minnesota, and this has been the outcome for their child that was exposed by this drift incident, you know, when they were an infant, and really using those stories to make the um, evidence real, to ground that science in people's lives and experience, and that definitely is much more powerful. And that's something we've tried to do both using social media tools, using, as I said, Instagram and, and our blog and Twitter and so on, but also bringing voices into policymaking platforms like the UN spaces that we go to, bringing folks who are directly affected to speak in those forums, bringing people to briefings in Sacramento here in California, you know, in capitals around state capitals around the country and Washington, D.C., and I think that storytelling is what people remember and is a way in to really understand a very complex issue, but that really is, when you break it down, it's simple. We don't need to be using these really dangerous chemicals. Here are the harms they cause, and here are the alternatives that we need to put in place. And consumers, as well as dietitians, are often told by industry representatives that we need these chemicals to feed the world. And that if we choose an organic system, that we're going to have shortages on yields. But that really isn't the truth, is it? It's not. And there are many, again, scientific studies documenting in different parts of the world, including in the United States, documenting systems that have shifted away from chemical inputs or never used chemical inputs that have comparable production or in some cases higher. And I think one of the things to keep in mind too, a couple of things. One is there is also a lot of really strong evidence that farming that does not rely on chemicals, that relies on healthy soil and management of pest populations in more sustainable ways is much more resilient to the shocks of climate change there's evidence of this from around the world, whether it's droughts or floods or that just those systems are able to recover much more quickly than these chemical intensive systems, which are actually really fragile. And the other point I would make about that kind of cost argument that, you know, people need to to uh, have access to, we need to keep the production systems as they are to feed the world, et cetera, is that so many of the actual costs of that production are externalized, right? The cost of losing our pollinator populations, the cost of water pollution, the health costs associated with exposure to these chemicals, whether it's the farmers themselves, the, the farm workers, the rural communities that are exposed to these 
chemicals, those are all costs that are not captured in the actual cost of food because it's subsidized by these incentives that drive the chemical use. And so, you know, I think what Pam's work has been is shining a light on, on that and also on the systems that are working as alternatives and so that there's a model that we can move toward and really transform what our system of food and farming. Mm, I agree with you. In the first part of your three-part blog series, Reflections, you brought forth a really important point, and that is for those of us who raise questions about safety and health, we are often portrayed as troublemakers or fear mongers. You know, we're trying to steer up fear and somehow we're going to be cashing in on it. And I bring that point up because of what you just said about who's really paying the costs of putting these toxins on our environment. And that's a very troubling position to be in when you're being told by nice industry representatives, just rely on facts and don't be a fear monger. But if we are paying attention to the facts, we should be very much afraid. And afraid and also, you know, determined, I would say. And and let me just say that I so enjoyed the putting time and, and energy into those reflection blogs. It was really fun for me to sort of look back and do some pondering about what are some of the lessons and, and the themes that I've seen over the last 25 years. And yeah, the first blog was the first thing that came to mind as I did that reflecting was just the challenge that we face coming up against the corporate entities that are benefiting from the current system and the resources that they have to spin the message, to buy the billboards, to, you know, I mean, they have whole departments that are all about messaging this kind of feed the world story and um, ensuring people that, oh, our products are safe and so on. And, And it's a lot to go up against. And it also is you know, if you think about it, it's pretty clear that these are the folks that are benefiting financially from the current system. So they are very motivated to push back against the kind of changes that we seek. And I think that's actually a really simple message. It's kind of a follow the money, you know, right. message is like, why are these folks pushing so hard to keep Corpirifos on the market or to keep the Kimba, you know, these really very clearly dangerous chemicals out there is because they're making profits. You know, and it's not that farmers need them or want them or are pushing for them. The farmers, again, are getting this information from these corporations. But, I mean, we work with a lot of farmers. Pan has worked over the years with many farmers in the Midwest, in California, and other states that are pretty tired of not having control over their inputs and seeing this pesticide treadmill, right? where, oh, we're using this chemical, and oh, surprise, there's resistance that develops, whether it's weeds or insects, and so now we need the next more toxic chemical, and um, and farmers are frustrated by that. So it really is the pesticide industry, you know, that's pushing so hard to keep this chemical-intensive system in place. Exactly. Let me take one break, Kristen, because we're halfway through, and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Kristen schaefer former executive director of the Pesticide Action Network, headquartered in Berkeley, California. I want to go back and touch on something that you mentioned, and that has to do with just the power of the industry. And again, drawing from your excellent, thoughtful, and insightful three-part blog series, which I will provide a link to for our listeners, you also bring up the issue of state preemption. So when consumers become aware and therefore activated or determined to take some sort of action to protect their communities and their water and their children, they may run up against a roadblock, which is this state preemption of pesticide regulation. Tell me what that is. Yeah, this is actually a result of a very intentional campaign many years ago, again, that the pesticide industry invested in to get rules passed at the state level in state houses across the country that said that local communities could not have rules that were more protective than the state rules when it comes to pesticide use. So that's what state preemption means. So 
the way that there are a handful of states that did not have that preemption, but they're few and far between. And so what that means is if a local community is concerned about pesticide use and how it's affecting their children's health or how it's affecting pollinators in their community, and they organize and get a, a local bill passed, a local ordinance passed that puts limits on specific pesticides or disallows use of pesticides in public spaces, in parks, in public buildings, that that in many states is not allowed because of the state preemption. And so it's actually something that part of our organizing in Minnesota, for example, has been to push back against that state preemption rule. And there's been some good progress there where it hasn't yet passed. Again, it mobilized a lot of industry opposition, but really widespread support among various groups that really see the benefit of local control around these issues that affect public health. So, so we'll see. I think there, there's, there's a bit of a movement to push back against that state preemption, which is really encouraging. And one example of how it is, can be powerful to move things at the local level is in Canada, where there are many localities, they don't have the state preemption, and there are communities across that country who have disallowed the what's called cosmetic use of pesticides. So pesticides can't be used in lawns or on in public parks um, because of these known health effects. So it can make a huge difference if local communities are able to move forward some of these measures. Mm. So I love that we're talking about this whole preemption issue and regulation because the chemical industry loves to complain about regulation. They don't want to be regulated. And yet here they are preventing individual local communities from having self-control and power. We're, we are, in a sense, being regulated to not be able to protect ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. It is a little ironic if you put it that way, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And again, I think the one of the ways when you talked earlier about sort of messaging and how to share this information in ways that are effective and we talk about regulation is really safety measures when you talk about how regulations on these pesticides that are known to cause these devastating harms to human health whether it's cancer or neurodevelopmental harms or you know and so what the industry calls regulation and regulatory overreach is really common sense safety measures, whether it's restricting use of those chemicals so that it's minimized, or whether it's getting some of those chemicals off the market because they're just too toxic. And that's really common sense public safety. Yeah, that's a great way to define the word regulation and to shift it from a negative connotation to a positive one. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about your time at EPA because in the fall of 2021, you wrote an excellent article for the newsletter that the Pesticide Action Network puts out. It's called The Catalyst. And the title of this was Kick Corporations Out of the EPA. And you mention just how much corporate influence buys decisions at the very organization that is designed to protect our environment. Do you want to share any specific stories from that experience that you had? Sure. Well, two things come to mind. One, which is one of the things I think I mentioned in that article, was as an experience as an advocate with Pam coming to EPA together with some farm worker advocates to their office right outside of D.C. and Virginia to have a meeting and talk about the status of chlorpyrifos and the worker protection standard and atrazine and et cetera. And as we were on our way up to the big conference room, the head of the office who was hosting us, you know, we were in the elevator and he kind of turns to us and, you know, says, oh, so nice to see you folks. We meet with industry people all the time. (laughs) And it was just so striking that he didn't even realize that what he was saying and what that means in terms of who has a seat at the table and who has influence over the decisions they're making every day that influence the lives of millions of people across the country. So that's one incident that comes to mind. And then the other was from, again, years ago, I worked at EPA, was actually in a different 
issue area was in the Office of Solid Waste, so it wasn't specifically on pesticides. But I always say that two lessons I learned through that experience that were really valuable were what makes things move within the agency, right? Like, what is it that moves the bureaucracy, which is big and lumbering? And the two lessons I learned, one are court deadlines, make things move at EPA, and the other are requests from Congress. They come in a yellow folder, or they used to, I don't know if they still do, but congressional requests, CRs they call them, really that there's an accountability that the agency has to respond to that request. So both of those lessons were valuable, you know, as I moved into the world of advocacy and knowing, okay, being involved in various lawsuits and keeps that pressure on EPA as well as the organizing and building power in different states across the country that, you know, whether we're collecting signatures and petitions or holding meetings with EPA, that that combination of things has moved the conversation forward within the agency. So as health advocates, our job is definitely to reach out to our congressional representatives. However, I am concerned about it's a balancing act. So on the one hand, our representatives may hear from a consumer or a healthcare provider who is concerned about a particular pesticide. But on the other hand, you've got the industry also contacting Congress with big checks and maybe their own science. Are enough people questioning who owns any specific scientific report that comes on their desk? Well, I think the answer is no. (laughs) And I think that goes to a conversation that Pan is engaged with, together with many other advocates who have worked on pesticide policy issues over the years, about the need at EPA specifically for a culture shift within the Office of Pesticide Programs specifically, that basically over the years, the culture has become a sense of being accountable more to industry than to public health, that their job is to you know move these requests through the process to get these new chemicals approved, and that that's kind of the focus and the purpose of that office, rather than the focus and purpose of that office being asking those questions about where that science is coming from and whose interests are reflected there and how do we best prioritize decisions that are really going to protect our children and communities across the country and farm workers who are on the front lines of exposure to these dangerous chemicals. And so that's a conversation, you know, I think that the Biden administration is more open to those conversations and being in dialogue with various stakeholders but it will take time to make that shift within the agency. But I think it's critical that that accountability to the pesticide industry is is shifted to accountability to public health and the environment. Right. Now, you mentioned in the second blog post that you wrote the Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act, and that's Senate Bill 3283, and you encourage us to reach out to our senators. You even make it easy. The Pesticide Action Network has great action alerts and ways to get in touch with our representatives. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that particular act and what would you like our listeners to know? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for lifting that up. It's PACTPA, which is, I'm not, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but it's but that's the acronym, the Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act, is a really important piece of legislation. Basically, the rules that govern pesticide use in the United States are based on a really old piece of legislation, FIFRA, and that legislation is from the 1940s and has been updated by sort of piecemeal here and there. But again, it has not been, doesn't reflect what's now understood about the science of pesticides. So the PACTPA legislation would be a long overdue and much needed full-blown reform of how we approach pesticide regulation in the United States. And it would, a couple of just key highlights that would be really important and, and impactful is it would look to actually eliminate a whole class of chemicals called organophosphates, which the chlorpyrifos is one, and many of the other chemicals in that class have very similar health impacts. 
It would also eliminate neonicotinoids, which are very well known to be destroying our pollinator communities. And also there's recent science that there are human health effects that's emerging. And so it would first off the bat remove both of those known really dangerous types of chemicals from the U.S. market. It would also set up a system where we're paying more attention to decisions that are made in other countries when, for example, in Europe, when a pesticide is restricted or taken off the market, that would trigger a review in the U.S. because obviously that's based on science, you know, a scientific process that they've taken and they've taken a, a protective decision. And so there would be more accountability and learning from what's happening in other countries to protect communities from pesticides. So it would be it would be a, a huge step forward to have PACTA in place. And so I know PAN is going to be working over the course of 2022 to do some organizing with children's health advocates and farm worker advocates and others to build momentum for that legislation. Great. Well, I will provide the website so our listeners can learn more about that legislation and so much more from your website. And that's www.panna.org. That stands for the Pesticide Action Network of North America. Kristen, we just have a minute left. Is there anything that you want our listeners to know before we have to close? Yeah, thanks for that. I think I would share that there is reason for hope. Uh, I think that there is, again, reflecting over the 25 years, I've seen such a shift in the level of knowledge and engagement around food and how much people care about where their food comes from and how it's grown and so many more people translating that into not just what they shop for, you know, and, and where they put their dollars, but also getting involved. And I think that really is the key to making the kind of change that we need to make. Mm, very good advice. We've got to close. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Kristen Schaefer. She is the former executive director of the Pesticide Action Network, which is headquartered in Berkeley, California, but does work internationally to protect human health and our environment. Kristen, thank you so much for your time today and all of your work at PANA. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's been my pleasure to talk with you. This Friday is the day after St. Patrick's Day, but the celebration continues. I'm moving on right after the noon news to 1.30. Host Don Jacobson will be presenting an entire program of performances by Irish musicians and music about Ireland. We'll hear Kevin Burke and the Bothy Band, Karen Casey, Planksty, and selections from a newly remastered classic album, Andy Irvine and Paul Brady. Tune in this Friday, just afternoon, to 1.30, only on KBOO. This is Cy Khan here at KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, a liberated zone. Listen to community radio, support community radio. It belongs to us. KBOO Radio Station is located in Portland, Oregon, in Multnomah County. We honor the indigenous people whose traditional and ancestral homelands we stand on. The Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Watlala, Bands of the Chinook, the Tualatin, Kalapuya, and many other indigenous nations of the Willamette and Columbia River regions. It is important to acknowledge the ancestors of this land and to recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them. In remembering these communities, we honor their legacy, their lives, and their descendants with the forming of relationship to each other and the living world. We establish and support harmony within ourselves and set the stage for praxis.
KBOO Portland. Coming up next is Jazz Lives, right after these news headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy miércoles 16 de marzo del 2022. Las potencias mundiales se han acercado poco a poco a un acuerdo para renunciar a las patentes de las vacunas contra el COVID-19, una medida que permitiría fabricar y distribuir versiones genéricas más baratas entre los países en desarrollo con mayor rapidez. Un documento filtrado visto por The Guardian revela detalles de un compromiso alcanzado entre los Estados Unidos, la Unión Europea, India y Sudáfrica que pondría fin a un punto